Hi, this is Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back to Wise Words, the podcast where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. Uh, this episode is the second in a series of six that explore post-pandemic priorities for education around the world. Uh, as was the case with the previous episode, featuring Rebecca Winthrop from the Brookings Institution. At the end of my conversation with our guest, I will be joined by Andrew Jack, Global Education Editor at the Financial Times, to reflect on the discussion and to give us a preview into some of the other issues that he is looking into. Before I introduce this episode, let me again remind our audience about why, when the world is still very much in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, WISE is choosing to focus on post-pandemic priorities. Well, for a start, we spent most of 2020 doing an in-depth exploration of education responses to the pandemic, both through this podcast and our Education Disrupted Education Reimagined series of convenings and the ebook that came out of those discussions. All of that can be found on our website at www.wise-qatar.org. So we feel that we've covered this ground fairly well. Moreover, we are optimistic that with the rollout of effective vaccines beginning to take place around the world, now is precisely the time to start thinking about and planning for what comes next. And there are a couple of questions that are top of mind for us at WISE. The first set of questions revolves around how well we understand the scale of the post-pandemic challenge, both in terms of learning loss, but also in terms of the issues uh, that have to do with mental health and well-being, as well as the loss of the socializing functions of education. And as a follow-up to these questions, how will are policymakers and education leaders around the world preparing to address these challenges? The second set of questions revolves around the extent to which policymakers and education leaders are seizing the opportunity offered by this crisis to engage in meaningful and impactful changes to our education systems. There was, and still is, a lot of talk about the need to build back better. What does that look like in practice? And are we really building back better or simply trying to go back to business as usual? With that, let me now introduce the second part of our new series, Post-Pandemic Priorities for Education. India is the world's second most populous country and is projected to overtake China in just four years to become the world's most populous country with 1.45 billion people. India already has the world's largest school-age population, around 250 million children aged between 5 and 15. That's 20% of the world's total. And to put that figure further in perspective, the equivalent number for China is around 170 million. And so how India copes with the education fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic will have profound implications, not just for the lives of a significant proportion of the world's young, but for the world as a whole, given the important role that India plays and will play in the global supply of skilled labor. Who better then to shed light on recent developments in India than Rukmini Banerjee, a good friend of WISE and the CEO of Pratam, India's and the world's largest education NGO. Rukmini has been with Pratam since 1996 and has extensive field experience in program design and implementation in both rural and urban settings. She also led Pratam's research and assessment activities, including the groundbreaking annual status of education report from 2005 to 2014. 
In 2015, she took over as CEO of Pratam from its founder, Madhav Chavan, who amongst his many accolades was also the recipient of the Wise Prize for Education in 2012. Initially trained as an economist in India with degrees from St. Stephen's College and the Delhi School of Economics, Rukmini was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford and completed her PhD at the University of Chicago. In 2008, Rukmini was the first recipient of Molana Abul Kalam Shiksha Puraskar, I hope I haven't butchered that too much, uh, awarded her by the government of the state of Bihar. During our conversation, we discussed the annual state of education report for 2020 and how it was adapted to deal with COVID-19 restrictions. Some hopeful findings from that report around parent-teacher engagement and the importance of old tech. Pratam's supplementary education system and how Pratam hopes to support efforts to build back better, the importance of focusing and getting the fundamentals right, literacy and numeracy, and avoiding the temptation to jump right back into business as usual, and many more topics. With that, please join me in conversation with Rukmini Banerjee. Rukmini, welcome back to Wise Words. Happy to be here. Um, just before, again, we we uh, uh, switch gears to talk about, you know, about the pandemic and the post-pandemic priorities for education in India. Is it is it right to say that uh, Pratam essentially runs almost like a parallel remedial uh, education system that supports some two to three million children a, a year? Is that more or less correct? So I would say not parallel. We run it alongside, I mean, we run it, for example... Supplementary. Yes, anything that we do, we do inside government schools. But we also do a lot of work with families and communities. And our direct work, where there is a problem person, uh, you know, interfacing with children or with teachers or with families, uh, you know, depending on the year, uh, and of course this last year, we don't count that, but uh, is somewhere, anywhere between about a million and a bit more. But we do a lot of work in partnership with governments, and that number is you know, would be it's bigger. It's bigger, yeah. Great. Well, Rukmini, again, thank you. Uh, you know, thank you for being with us. And let's let's begin just by having you reflect a little bit on what the impact of the pandemic has been on India's education system, because I think importantly, your 2020 Acer report. First of all, it was the first time that you did, uh, you collected data by phone. You did phone surveys instead of in-person surveys. And you're releasing it in waves. So you you, typically you release in in, uh, January, if if I remember correctly. This time you released it in October. And you specifically focused on trying to understand what the impact of COVID has been on uh, on India's education. Do you want to say a little bit uh, about that? Yeah, so our ASAR report really since 2005 has been looking at are all children in school and can they, you know, read basic uh, texts and can they do, you know, simple arithmetic? That's really what it is. Uh, we do it in every rural district in India and, you know, it has provided a long uh, trend of data. Uh, and after 2014, after the first 10 years, we've gone to doing the big one every alternate year. And we spend the gap year in sort of going deeper into a, you know, a particular age group or a particular domain. So 2020 really was the year for the big one. Uh, and uh, of course, COVID happened. And, uh, you know, 
we have been so, as I as I said earlier, we've been so uh, busy measuring outcomes that we felt that perhaps because of COVID and because we now will have to reach out uh, by phone, uh, why don't we think about some process? What is happening in the community or in the home uh, uh, right now? In a normal Asar year, we go to a sampled village, but we also visit the local school. And so we try to do that in this year as well. Uh, in trying to reach out to the school to see, because in many parts of India, children were not coming to school, but teachers were actually there. And so what kind of efforts are, Mm -hmm. so basically what is the household doing about uh, children's education? What is the school doing? And do we see, you know, what is the common ground? Uh, The challenge really was that you needed to have a representative sample. Normally you sample from, you know, your uh, whatever sampling lists, census lists and so on. But uh, we also realized, and these are some things that you do without knowing how useful they're going to be in future. We do collect uh, from every ASAR survey, we collect phone numbers because that those are usually used for going back and verifying that the survey happened and for cross-check. So the 2018 national sample had phone numbers. And we also know that even in 2018, 90% of families had some kind of a phone So we quickly did a lot of work to see how, because people change numbers all the time, you know, you use uh, SIM cards, you change them and so on. So we did a big thing to see uh, whether the uh, sampling frame using the phone numbers would work. And, you know, to a large extent, it was was possible. We also collect phone numbers from schools that we visit for the same reason. So we were able to go back to this kind of treasure because... Right now, trying to come up with a sampling that would be represented would be very hard. And so essentially what we did is we called families and had a chat with them about what they were doing, uh, you know, who was helping whom, uh, you know, of course, were they okay, uh, uh, you know, uh, and uh, what arrangements were they, and we did this in September. So really the absolute lockdown period was over, things had loosened up a bit. And I think we discovered a couple of very important things. One was that by September, usually in our schools, uh, the uh, you know we do our normal asset as well between September, October, and November because attendance and enrollment have stabilized. Yeah. Uh, and so, therefore, we thought at least that September would be soon enough after the lockdown, but still well within the school year that anything that we found out could be useful uh, to governments or to others. Uh, and so really, it was not about outcome. So uh, the wave one, which was September, was really about what is going on at home, what is going on in the community, and in what ways are schools being able to reach kids. Uh, we are right now at the beginning of a potential wave two, uh, because, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, out of sync with our normal, uh, normal uh, pattern. And what we want to do is to really start thinking about what in this period has been lost or gained. Yeah. So uh, we've also been talking to governments because there are a lot of governments in India who are interested in figuring that out. And it looks likely that in April, we will do another wave, not a national one, but in some states where movement is possible and where there is also an interest in trying to set kind of a immediate post-COVID baseline that potentially we can follow. We are hoping, of course, that 2021, September to November, hopefully with vaccinations and so on rolling out, we should be able to do a 
uh, usual asar by that time. And 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 what are what are some of the uh, the highlights of what you found uh, in so, terms of of the impact of COVID? So I would say one important one, which is I think very under praised and undersung, is that the different governments in India were able to deliver and distribute textbooks to all the children. And I think to do that for 200 and whatever, 40 million children is not a, in, in this COVID time. And different states use different ways to do it. Uh, in some cases, teachers actually took the textbooks to children's homes. In other cases, it was delivered till the village shop and then parents came and took them. But we realized in retrospect that this was a very good move because I think a textbook is a very universally understood thing. You know, even uneducated parents understand that you start at the beginning, go to the end, it has stuff in it, it's sequenced. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you are able to say to your kids, go sit down with that and do stuff from it. Whereas a lot of this online and, you know, other things are very dependent on uh, new ways of reaching children, often very, you know, not available to everyone. Whereas a textbook is in every home, in every school, and everybody knows it. So I think that was a very wise move, and I'm surprised why we haven't congratulated our governments more for actually just doing this one very practical step. The second thing I think that was that we all know, but we got some estimates, was that there was a lot of help obviously going on in families. And I'm talking about you know a large rural sample yeah. where only a very small portion was on online classes or video lessons or stuff like that. It was much more that you may be getting, parents may be getting a message on the phone and then you're helping kids do it. And more often than not, it was worksheets that were coming either from the school or from, you know, through the phone or whatever. And so who was helping children do that? Uh, We saw that even in families with not much education, there was engagement. That's hard for us to know whether this engagement was always there because we don't measure these kinds of things usually. Uh, But I think that, I think there was a big, you know, hats off to parents, as we all know from all our families, that people have, you know, parents had to step in. Big role by siblings, older siblings helping younger siblings. And obviously, you know, the, the, the you know, we are, a, I mean, any society has a lot of inequality. And so educated parents are much more likely to have devices at home to which children yeah. could connect. Educated parents are also more likely to be able to engage meaningfully with you know the education of their children so we saw all of that but we also saw that on the engagement side with whatever resources parents had there was quite a bit going on there as well uh, and so I, I think that it it you know it put a, uh, a put some numbers onto what as Pratham we were feeling from the communities in which we were working is that uh, uh, everybody was doing a little bit more than they would have normally and perhaps, you know, sharing resources. Uh, like say, we saw a lot of uh, teachers visiting families and parents going to school. And I think this is a very important part of something we should take forward is that the adults in the child's life need to be better connected. Now we were better yeah. connected by need, but I hope that this is, doesn't get eroded. Yeah. So overall, I would say, I don't know how much learning happened because we didn't measure that. Uh, there was quite a bit of engagement. And I think uh, it was clear, for example, if you looked at the comparison between private schools and government schools, even in rural areas, about the proportion of private school teachers who were reaching 
children's homes and government school teachers, the government outreach was much more. So you could see some amount of compensating because government schools know that their children will not have devices, uh, maybe in scattered rural areas. And yeah. therefore, uh, I mean, I don't know if I am just a, uh, believe in the human touch more than in technology, but I feel like a lot of this showed the importance of the human interaction between children, between families, between schools and uh, and all of which I think are things that we should continue with. It's interesting that, I mean, first of all, I, I think that's, I mean, you paint a very, um, a very hopeful picture and, and you know, a, a, which perhaps shouldn't surprise us because, you know, t- typically the, the kinds of people that, that uh, you know, choose education as a vocation tend to be uh, people who are, <laughs> you know, oriented towards, you know, service and, and, uh, and, and supporting others. So, uh, you know, in, in some ways, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm encouraged, but at the same time, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that teachers uh, went the extra mile, uh, mm-hmm. in this case, quite literally yeah. In, yeah. In, in support of their, uh, of their students. Um, and also, I think it's it's you know it's it's interesting to to see the emphasis that that you know and and the role that you know that legacy technology, yes, you know, in the form yes. of textbooks, right? Because that's yes. also a technology. Yeah, exactly. um, it's exactly. a very old technology, but it you know it it works and it's robust. That's and, familiar. And familiar, and uh, you know, and it can work in uh, in a sort of emergency context like the one that we're uh, you know where we're still dealing with. Now, you, um, Rukmini, you said you you didn't attempt to measure the the impact on learning. Was was that a, and was that a practical yeah. uh, issue for you because you you couldn't administer tests? So exactly. So I would yeah. say that, uh, you know, think about ASAR as one activity that Pratham does and a lot of other yeah. activities. And I'll talk about both. In ASAR, to measure, really what would be important to measure is where were kids before and where they are today. And you'd have to do this on some kind of a representative sample, yeah. which is what we do in a normal ASAR. And yeah. you'd have to use pretty much similar methods to be able to compare. Yeah. And so we've just, in fact, today we were looking at, uh, you know, as Pratham, we've done a lot of different kinds of remote assessment. And we were trying to come up with an understanding of when I uh, send you, uh, uh, you know, a reading task on a WhatsApp versus when I send that to you and an SMS versus when I go to your house and talk to you, how different or similar are these and how does this vary by the yeah. type of device, you know, and all of that. I think you know, we need to do all of that because there could be another such situation. So within Pratham programs, we've done quite a bit about trying to measure because we had a lot of data. Uh, we have people who are uh, close to the children and so on. But in Asar, we decided that the even if we had, firstly, how do you ask kids to read on the phone? Because everybody's phones are different and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, I mean, it, we are now figuring out how to do that in a standardized way. But it would not be comparable to the last Asar measurement. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why the wave two will be a, a face-to-face Asar, which we can compare at the district level and at the state level with the previous Asar, which now was almost two and a half years ago, because we didn't do a big Asar in 2019 to be able to compare. Yeah. Uh, but we have been, Stavros, doing some interesting 
if I just take a step ahead, yep. to say that, you know, uh, we've been making the case to anybody who will listen that uh, here is what is looking at ASER data, looking at data, some ASER and some program data, what is actually possible to do, right? In this, uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about building back better. Yeah. Is that even feasible, right? Yeah. So what we've done is, and I'm going to just run this by you to see whether it convinces you or not. Okay. Through you to your readers. So we have ASER data for the last so many years, even if I take the last 10 years. And we know we can follow cohorts year on year or with yeah. alternate years about how much learning gain happens in a normal year, right? For a yeah. given state, for a given move from grade to grade. Now, as Pratham, we've worked in quite a few of these states uh, on fairly large scale on exactly learning improvement programs. And very often these government programs have used the ASA tool to measure. So the measurements yeah. are also not very different. And I'll give you an example. UP, which is our biggest state, 120,000 government primary schools, carried out a teaching at the right level program, which is Pratham's catch-up yep. program, if you may. And we see, if I look at the past data of UP, year on year, depending on the year, depending on the cohort, maybe anywhere between 5 to 15 percentage point improvement in the basic ability to read a simple story. Mm -hmm. That's your usual year. Yeah. But then I look at a program which is fairly recent, about 18 in 2018-19, statewide, and we look at what was that program able to achieve with the same government schools, same teachers, same children in three months. It's almost 15 to 18 percentage points in three months. Mm -hmm. Now, and what does that tell you? That when you put things aside, when you put your curriculum aside, when you put your other stuff aside, focus on the basic building of reading and math in a state yeah. where this is quite low, you can actually in three months get a gain of what you got in a normal year. <laughs> and and so, so I, I mean, just back up a bit. So what yeah. changed? I mean, what was different about the three-month program versus the... three-month the... program said, uh, put aside for two hours a day, put the textbooks aside, put your curriculum, grade-level curriculum aside, mm -hmm. and go for building basic reading and basic math. Okay. Okay. Because there are there's a big backlog in UP. Let's say there is a lot of children who are not at grade level who are well below, and they're well below and don't have the basic reading and math skills. So let's say that if it is important, I mean, which it is, uh, to have yeah. a basic foundation on which you can build, then if you don't do a hundred different things during the year and don't follow the curriculum which was designed maybe for a different kind of uh, children and focus on basic reading and basic uh, numeracy, you can, in three months, with the same set of resources, get a bump up, which is equal to an average year. Yeah. Hence, when schools open, and again, let me try this out on you, we've been saying, do a 100-day campaign. Three months is about 100 days, right? Mm -hmm. Do a 100-day yeah. campaign, which, if you believe my numbers, should bring you up to a usual school year, and then you can do another one, which can take you higher. But for doing that, you'll have to put aside your grade level curriculum, which very many children in many of our states are not at grade level. So the yeah. tendency for school systems is to come to business as usual as quickly as possible. Yeah. And we are saying that don't do that. Slow down and you'll be able to speed up later. If you try to speed up now, 
this may harm. And there's this study from Pakistan, which was done after the Pakistan earthquake. And uh, the researchers went back several years later. And they found that all other indicators of human development had gone back, you know, livelihoods, health, all kinds of things. But the learning levels had not. Mm-hmm. And the interesting point that the researchers made is that they attribute the learning levels not going back to normal, not to school closure, but to what schools did when they opened, which was to rush back mm-hmm. to doing normal stuff. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, the long and the short is, I think if we take a deep breath, go back and reconnect with our kids, give them opportunity to build back the foundations by giving time, giving teachers the leeway to do that. Yeah. I think there is the 2021-22 school year could be a dramatically different school year if we do this. And in, at least in India, we have a new education policy, which is actually saying build foundations. So we even have the, the, the you know, we can lean on a new national policy, which is actually saying build foundations and take a deep breath and do that. So I don't know if this is hopeful or... Yeah. Uh, persuasive or aggressive, but this is, I think, what we should. <laughs> well, I, I, to a certain extent, you're 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 preaching to the to the choir. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because I'm I'm a, you know, I've always been a personally a, a believer in getting the fundamentals of exactly. education right, and that, of course, is basic numeracy and and literacy. Yeah. You know, the, these are critical, and essentially, I mean, the implication of what you're saying you know, without actually saying it, is that in the absence of these fundamentals, the the rest of the curriculum is, you know, it, it, it is useless to use maybe a loaded, yes. you know, a somewhat loaded term because, you know, if people are not, uh, if the kids are not able to follow, they lack these uh, these foundational skills, then what are you actually doing doing with them by by sticking to this sort of national, you know, curriculum or, uh, or, and, or lesson plan. I, yeah. I think that all these, uh, you know, the Pratham's approach, this teaching at the right level, which has been evaluated by, you know, J-PALs and Nobel Prize winners and so on. I mean, all it says is what we know from our own families. You start yeah. at the level of the child rather than at the level of some other thing, like a curriculum. Yeah. And you make fast progress because the kids can then, you know, uh, react to exactly yeah. what they need, you know. So it's it's not rocket science, but I think education systems are very conservative in that sense that there is this skeleton of, uh, you know, grade, grade, linear movement, which is scaffolded by something that we call yeah. curriculum. And you feel like that's your, you know, that's the comfort thing that I to show normalcy. I must go back and it's your, what do you call it, safety blanket or whatever, you know, what kids hang on to uh, yeah. when they're small. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, uh, in 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 some respects, in say in uh, in in the uh, world of, of OECD countries, it's it's potentially also unfashionable to to say let's focus on the basics, and you know, people will jump up and down and say, well, what about you know, what about this subject, or you know, what about creativity? What about you know? Um, you know, uh, teaching kids to identify and follow their passions and, you know, all, all this great stuff. But, you know, again, in the absence of, uh, of, of the fundamentals, I, I'm not sure where that will, uh, w- will take you. So um, 
I, I'm personally convinced. What's <laughs> but but I you know I'm not sure that counts for very much. And what's been the response that you've been getting from policymakers in India? So I think that's the response has been. I think everybody realizes that this is a different moment in time. Now yeah. you know the arrival of our new education policy, which was released in uh, late July, early August, with this big focus on foundation, in a way, is a big boon because it is getting everyone to focus on the early years where foundations are actually built, which is absolutely needed, right? Yeah. However, I think there is not enough attention on the kids who are beyond the early years who don't have these foundation skills yeah. and who had or who had them very weakly and are likely to have lost them. You know, it's like if you don't know how to swim, you are going to drown and you didn't know how to swim before the pandemic. You are not having, you know, it's not likely you've learned it during. So I think that we have, I, I think in principle, people can see that, um, that there is a need to slow down. But sometimes a slowdown is only let, to say, let's do the previous grade, as opposed to let's take a hard look at where our kids are because they were not that great to begin with, even yeah. before the pandemic, and therefore start there. But I, I mean, I'm hopeful, partly because if I was not hopeful, I would not survive in this business. But I think that, uh, you know, what, what, what would be very important is when schools open, reconnect with each kid, do a set of activities so that the teacher can see exactly where the kid is at, welcome them back, not by giving them big fat things to do, but just to start at where you are. I think a lot of what you're saying about creativity and collaboration can happen at that level too. It yeah. doesn't need a high level syllabus to be creative. You can be very creative with little stories as well. And then go from where the children are and have an open mind about discovering where they are. And they are kids. They will grow very quickly. It's not like this is a whole year lost. I think it's kids have learned a lot of things. They may not be academic things, but I was, as I was telling you, we, I was in a webinar with some parents yeah. And they were talking about what they've learned from their kids. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. So one of the moms was saying, my kid tells me every time I ask a question, say, go to YouTube and have a look. It's all over there. So, you know, they, I think kids have learned things. Uh, they may not have learned them in some linear fashion. They've learned a yeah. lot from each other. Uh, they, I, I heard uh, the other day somebody was telling me, um, a 10-year-old, that uh, when uh, he has his online class, he changes his name to saying connecting audio dot, dot, dot. That way, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, this is creativity. Okay? Yeah, this yeah, is well, okay. <laughs> okay. So that So that he doesn't need to be there. So I think, I think we have to give kids time yeah. to come back and, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I sense from teachers that I speak to, everybody has missed being in school. And the missing of being in school is not only because you didn't get to do algebra. It's you missed your children. One of the yeah. teachers was saying, I miss the sound of assembly. You yeah. know, this noise. I haven't heard yeah. it in a long time. So let's use all these things that we enjoy. Let everybody reconnect. Take our yeah. time to say, where are we at? And then move from there. I mean, I, I, you, you touch on a very important point, which is I think what the pandemic has uh, reminded us all of is the socializing role that yeah. schools play. And that, you know, that, that, that that's the one thing that, that it's very hard to replicate and replace through online uh, forums. It, it's simply not the same. 
So I mean, I, think yeah. about it this this year in India at least, the kids who will go into second grade are literally going from their grandmother's lap into second grade because they didn't get to go to first grade. Yeah. And it's not clear whether they had any preschool prior to that. So we can't take these kids and start a second grade curriculum. You've got to give them time to get familiar with school, with what it means to be in a class, with what expectations yeah. are about how you behave. And again, I'm saying, give everybody a hundred days, not because hundred is a magic number, because it's just a nice round number to just you know, settle in and do a lot of fun games, cognitive activities to let the little ones just settle in yeah. before we launch on any curriculum. And again, what what are some of the what are some of the things that that Pratam is is looking to do in order to, in a, in a sense, support some of these these efforts? So, uh, you know, I, I have to say that one of the reasons for me being hopeful is that I am surrounded by very dynamic young people who seem to have navigated their path through this pandemic in many interesting ways. Uh, just to give you an example, you know, we in March 2020, we had a direct presence in something like five or 6,000 villages. By June 2020, we were reaching 10,000 villages and nobody had moved. So, you know, this reach out happened in such an organic and an urgent way. And I'm not saying that the reach out was to teach. The reach out was really to reach, you know, yeah. uh, to make sure that everybody's okay and blah, blah, blah. And in that reaching out, you know, like you were talking about legacy technologies, I think all this old uh, SMS stuff came back. And so I feel like in this last one year, we have learned a lot. We've learned a lot about how do you reach parents? How do you reach children? Uh, listen to them. A phone is a great way not just to send messages, but we've been out of these 10,000 villages. We realize the village is too big a unit. You have to look at neighborhoods. So 50,000 neighborhoods and within each neighborhood, are we able to reach as many children as possible? And when you reach the children and the families, uh, they get some messages from us, SMS, WhatsApp, or whatever, but they also get a phone call. Mm -hmm. And I think that phone call has taught us a tremendous amount. You know, firstly, it has taught us why were we not talking to parents one-on-one -on -one before? Because parents tell you a lot. We've learned what kind of uh, activities parents can get engaged in, what kind they find difficult, where can they help with, the, with their children, and so on. So... In terms of engagement, I think we've learned a lot. In terms yes. of how do you engage with whom? And uh, you can see who is motivated to do more. I think these are all things which lie under what we call learning. And we, take, we would take them for granted or we would just assume them. But during the pandemic, we've been able to kind of almost learn how to, uh, how to get excited about learning. Yeah. Uh, and I think... As a large organization, everybody has learned so many new things. It's got to translate into new ways of working. Uh, so we intend, we've focused a lot on, we've gone back in a way to our roots, back to parents, back to communities. And in these 50,000 hamlets or whatever you may call them, neighborhoods, you know, we've been able to find young people who have volunteered time. So our whole you know, I've been saying that if you take a piece of paper, which yeah. is white, school at one end and a home at one end, 
it's almost like in the before COVID, I'm exaggerating a bit. There was that whole white space. But that space got filled up with people, with grandmothers, moms, volunteers, SMS, radio. I mean, it may be a hodgepodge, but there's a lot of action. Now you have to make sense of that action. But I think keeping the direct contact to home, keeping neighborhood activities going, and then, of course, engaging with the school. We want to do this whole, you know, yeah. Well, I was, I was, I was think, I, I was thinking that with the your paper analogy, yeah, you, you, you were going to say, well, COVID has folded the paper, right? So the, uh, the school and home have come yes. together. Very <laughs> and, nice. And we I'm should, use we should, <laughs> we should maybe, you know, it's one of the things we should keep. Not, not so much I mean, in terms of homeschooling, but, yeah. but in terms of having the the home, meaning the family, uh, much more intimately connected with uh, with the school. And vice versa, and my, perhaps. Yeah, my parent webinar, my parents on this webinar were saying that we had not spoken to teachers as much as we have now. And we had not spoken to our children about what they were doing in school as much as we've done now. So it's you're absolutely right. Things have come closer together while being far away, which is kind of a weird thing. Rukmini, we've got a couple of questions from uh, from our audience. I I think we have some time. Are you are you happy to take? Sure, sure. Yeah, Okay, so I've, I've got one here from uh, Mauritius, uh, and it's about exams. Uh, you know, a number a number of countries, uh, including it seems Mauritius, have sort of have cancelled exams, uh, and students are being promoted automatically. And they they want to get your views on on automatic promotion. So I have no problem with automatic promotion. I think you need to, you know, as kids, particularly moving from one grade to the next, you know, what's a grade, frankly, you know, it's a, your friends are moving. So you need to move with your friends. Getting left behind and singled out is not a good thing. But I do think that we have in India a lot of very high stakes gatekeeping examinations. And people are worried about that. In some states, they've been delayed and some states have taken them early. But I think that since those exams hold such a grip on the way the education system functions, particularly at 10th grade and at higher levels, that this is the time to loosen that up and use technology to do that. You know, I'm, you know, I, I think technology can do many things. I think human beings can do many things. But allowing exams to be taken over a staggered period of time, at many, you know, like we'd like many children do when they go to SAT or GRE, they take it as many times as you feel you've done well enough. What's the big deal about doing an exam on a particular day at a particular time in the whole year? I think this is the time to introduce these things. That uh, I also think that if you had voluntary go test yourself on things that you want to get yourself tested on, I think a lot of people would. We yeah. see with our very simple ASAR uh, assessment. You go to a village with the SR assessment, kids bring all their friends and say, do him, do him. And so this may be a very good time to really rethink and experiment with different ways of assessment that are not so rigid and linear yeah. and, you know, so on. So. I mean, I, I, I imagine that, that, that I mean, I mean, there's in my mind, there's a whole, you know, uh, philosophical debate to be had about whether it's appropriate to have such high stake yeah. uh, examinations in the first place, but it's, exactly. It, exactly. It, it's, I mean, it's such a feature of, 
of the Indian education system, just as it is a feature uh, of, of the Chinese education system that, you know, I, I don't know what the, you know, what the chances are that this will be replaced, um, replaced anytime, uh, anytime soon. But it, it, in some ways, it's, it, it's even beyond the remit of the education system. And it, it goes to the way society is, is structured and organized. But I think this is the time to try experiments on that side and don't make them mandate. Start yeah. with some voluntary stuff. My um, grandmother used to live with me. She was in her 90s before she passed away. She had never been to school. And she was always dying to take an exam. She would say to me, can you give me an exam? <laughs> because it doesn't matter, I didn't get educated. But I really want an exam and I want a certificate. So yeah. why couldn't my grandmother go on to some open school Sight and do her exam because she was just yeah. like that to do her exam. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I think there's there's a there's a difference in terms of you know between assessment for the sake of uh, evaluating and you know understanding how much you've learned or or not learned, right? Uh, versus you know something that is you know potentially life yes. life changing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know will will determine your uh, you know your your trajectory for you know decades to come. So, yeah. but yeah, I mean it, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I you know the UK, for example, did away with uh, with uh, A level exams and you know based university admissions on predicted scores and the assessment of of teachers. Yes, there was you know some some grade inflation uh, you know as as a result. But uh, you know as far as I'm aware, the system didn't collapse. <laughs> as, yes, exactly. As, exactly. as a result, so it'll be interesting. I, I think you know it's it's very likely that they're going to cancel the exams this year as well. So it'll be interesting to assess two years on whether you know there's been any any significant impact in not having these. I mean, they're not as high stake uh, exams as the one you have you have in India, but you know they're still important. Can influence your uh, your future. Um, I mean, my own home state has gone ahead and done their exams in February. Schools yeah. have been closed. And, uh, uh, you know, somebody asked me the other day what I think. And I said, fine, you know, you're signaling that this is important and come return to whatever, you know. But when the results are out, why not use this as a baseline? And why not organize the instruction that is needed based on this? Yeah. So that you organize your high schools. This is a 10th grade exam. Organize your high schools to be able to fill the gaps because there may will be gaps, and maybe yeah. in future allow several attempts and provide support between the attempts. We've we've also got a question from Bangladesh. The questioner is asking if the schools are open for a day each week and in pockets, how can we focus on the foundation building? So I think that this is a classic case of when your paper is folded up and the school and the home come closer. That yeah. let's say if kids are being asked to come to school on alternate days or you know a few days a week or whatever, we've got to figure out what uh, in when they come, what do we take them, send them home with, or maybe the kid comes once a week, but parents come twice a week, take things back. So I, I think at the foundation level, actually, a lot of people can help. You know, yeah. by the time you get to algebra and trigonometry, I mean, I can't do it anymore. Right there, you almost need the. In teacher-led instruction and kind of, yeah. but at the level of building basic oral fluency, comprehension, simple uh, problem solving, 
I think uh, some guided, um, uh, you know, uh, steps for parents and for community members can. We've seen, for example, in some of the villages in which we work, and we've been part of it, saying in different parts of the village, let's paint a blackboard and put up a problem of the day. That gets everybody looking at the problem, talking about it and solving it. It's not necessarily a grade level problem. It's a problem. And let's see who all goes and uh, works it out. So I, I think that, you know, looking at what sequencing kids will come back, you need to figure out what do you do with them? What do you do? Take, send them home with and uh, figure out the effectiveness of this as we do it. Well, Rukmini, I think we, we've, we've sort of come up against uh, our allotted time. I, I really want to thank you for for joining us uh, today, and and thank you to everyone also from around the world for uh, for tuning in. I think you know you you know you've injected uh, you know some much needed optimism to uh, you know to conversations around what you know what we need to do post pandemic, and um, you know what, what I take away is you know in order to to build back better, we really need to focus on the basics. Yes. Make sure we get yes. the basics right. Uh, let's make time for our education systems to recover, for you know, kids to become acclimatized uh, again to the to the school environment, uh, and let's make sure we keep the many positives that have come out, you know, of of, of this experience. Not least of which is the uh, closer engagement between. Uh, and more frequent engagement between the the home and and school. And I think ride the wave that kids want to go back to school. And I think that that's a positive yeah. energy that needs you know the wave to go further. And teachers want to go back to school. And parents want everybody to go back to school. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So Andrew, let me welcome you back to Wise Words, and let's have some first reactions on uh, what you heard from Rukmini. Yeah, thanks very much. And it's uh, great to be back. No, I think, I mean, Rukmini is obviously, and, and Pratam is doing a fantastic job um, in India. And when I talk to different um, school systems and experts around the world, sort of looking for ideas and best practices, it often comes up in conversation. So, you know, in terms of a, a kind of a locally based organization with with a kind of real focus and a kind of resonance internationally kind of focusing on key issues and trying to sort of track and measure and therefore develop an evidence base um very impressive so we can talk more obviously about the approaches and the details but i think uh, what she's been raising and what the organization's been doing um, longer term, and then the particular approaches and updates and lessons in the context, both of the pandemic and thinking about the the agenda of building back better are really, really interesting and important ones. And her message was, in some respects, quite hopeful. I mean, I, I appreciate that, you know, within the constraints of what they were able to do in, in 2020, the you know, the ASA report really focused on the extent to which there was contact between children and, and the school and families in the school. And the picture she painted there was quite, you know, quite hopeful and, and, and quite, in, in, in some respects, impressive that, you know, teachers and the school system in general uh, went the extra mile to get uh, uh, resources to the kids. Obviously, what they can't tell us yet is the degree to which those interventions have have had 
an impact on learning. What, what was your take on uh, on that? Yeah, and I think I think that is the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, even where there have been attempts by a lot of different organisations to to track, to measure, to evaluate. These these are incredibly difficult things, first of all, to measure. And, you know, particularly if you're trying to do it in a kind of highly scientific way, if you like, a randomized control trial, very difficult. And then, of course, that's in normal circumstances before we talk about the, the chaos that was caused by COVID. So there is a sort of challenge in terms of going beyond, if you like, the processes to really understand the the impacts, which I think the whole sector faces. That said, and I think her comments and experiences resonate with what I've heard in, in a number of different countries, which is that sort of sense of an opening up of, if you like, the mystique or the distance perhaps of schools sometimes from parents and policymakers and the wider community. Um, I mean, I think it can only be good when there is more engagement. I mean, obviously, on the one hand, you don't want, how to put it, helicopter parents sort of constantly breathing down the neck of teachers in a way that's sort of distracting. But, you know, of course, we're all all engaged. We're all bought in. uh, We're all part of a system that sees an interest, even those without children. They are our future, of course. And so the more the community understands the challenges first and foremost, I think, of of teaching and of schools, the better. And then the more there is a way to kind of leverage, as she was talking about, you know, parents clearly can be key, also siblings, of course, and others in extended families in providing support for each other. Of course, not all parents have the the time, um, they may not have the particular skills or capacities um, to support all areas of a child's learning. But to be engaged in a broader sense, to try to understand, to learn from, to support in different ways, their learning and the learning and the benefits to the community more generally is, is fundamentally important. And I think that is one thing that, that people have become more aware of, sensitized to trying to explore new models that will be one of the more positive things to come out of this pandemic. And, and you know, what, what struck me, you know, when we shifted the discussion to building back better and, and you know, what should be the, the immediate post-pandemic priorities, many was very much of the view, uh, focus on the basics, get the basics right. Now, you know, one, one could argue that, you know, the context of India is, is perhaps somewhat somewhat unique and certainly very different from, from say, an OECD context. But, you know, this idea of getting basic numeracy and literacy right as a main, uh, as the building block, if you will, from which to, to then construct, you know, more complex levels of, of education is, is not necessarily a new one. And it's one that even systems, you know, like the UK have been grappling with, uh, for example, and have sort of swung you know, from one end of the pendulum to, to, to the other. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a very long-standing and legitimate debate about where to focus and prioritise, both in age ranges and in uh, skills and knowledge, and more widely, what sort of support um, children best need to learn and develop and fulfil their potential. There's a risk if we spread uh, too widely, then um, really 
you know, efforts get diluted and not much mm-hmm. is achieved. And I think certainly, and particularly in the earlier years, it makes absolute sense that if you don't have some core building blocks, basic literacy and numeracy, most notably, then it's really impossible to uh, increase your skill levels later. So I think an increasing focus on this so-called foundational skills is incredibly important. And it's not, uh, as you say, simply an issue in India or in some much lower income countries. Uh, I was talking, did a piece um, a few days ago, talking more in kind of richer countries, including, of course, the US. And there are many of these same concerns that there's been a huge learning loss, including around Mm -hmm. uh, basic literacy and numeracy with children slipping back many months. And so there's this sort of... um, reflection, I think, at all levels and in all types of societies at the moment about trying to assess and understand what, where the setbacks are and what's been lost, where more generally there are longer term structural issues that need to be focused on in the future in, in education, uh, and then how to catch up or improve. And I think a significant part of that in many different countries and systems does have to be on some of those core essential skills. The challenge is the trade-offs, you know, and if you have to, I think, you know, a lot of educational experts would would say, yes, you absolutely need to focus on ensuring that children could get back into the system. A lot of their experience is based not on holistic, you know, multi-month disruptions across mm-hmm. the entire world, as we know has happened in recent months, but but normally in more specific targeted remedial situations after natural disasters like Katrina, for example, in the US, or indeed what happened um, with the earthquakes in Asia in the last few years. You have smaller groups in smaller, more concentrated areas, but learning loss is a huge challenge. And one of the keys in tackling it does seem to be kind of strip away the stuff that's seen as, you know, absolutely not so essential, really focus on the things that you would need to advance or catch back up to where you would be in existing programs. Now, there's a wider debate about whether those existing programs more structurally Mm -hmm. need to be refocused. And of course, the other challenge is how do you alongside the core intensive work that, for example, Pratam was was discussing there, the sort of 100 days recovery program. You yeah. know, what about, for example, those wider social and emotional skills and the other, as it were, non-academic aspects of support and socialization, which is so fundamental in schools? So that shouldn't be neglected either. But I think um, basic literacy and numeracy are definitely something that need a lot more attention and focus going forwards around the world. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, you're right to, to point out that this is, you know, this is a debate that isn't confined to, to, to lower income countries, nor is it necessarily an issue that has to do with, with the pandemic and its, and its aftermath. I, I mean, I don't know how, how deep you've, you've uh, gone into, uh, into some of the PISA data, but what, what struck me over, over the years as I've, I've looked at this data is, you know, if you do a, a sort of an analysis of, you know, of, of the level at which, you know, different, uh, you know, d- different countries are, you actually see that, um, you know, PISA has these seven levels of, of uh, you know, proficiency that they measure. If I'm not mistaken, somewhere between sort of 60 and 70 percent 
of 15-year-olds across the OECD countries plus plus that take the uh, the PISA test are really at at level three or below, level two being past, you know, passing grade. And, you know, I, I personally just sort of d- dug a little into, you know, some of the sample tests just to sort of see for myself, what is this level two and level three is, you know, you know, are, are, are they being, you know, somewhat unrealistic in terms of, of, of expectations and, and so on. And I was actually fairly shocked to discover that that's not a particularly high level of attainment. And so I think, you know, I, I do think we need to be asking ourselves, you know, are we sort of satisfied with what we have, even in, in the OECD, in terms of, you know, basic uh, literacy and, and numeracy? And are we in some ways doing a disservice to students by placing so much, you know, emphasis on, you know, issues around creativity and, you know, and, and all the sort of, you know, discover your passion and, and pursue. I mean, again, I'm not saying that that's not important, but, you know, how realistic is that in a context where we're not getting the basics, right? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, there's many, many issues to unpack there. I mean, of course, some people would criticize PISA as they do other attempts to benchmark mm. and test. You know, they're not, you know, lots of, there's a lot of criticisms about um, how comparable between cultures they are, whether they're measuring the right things, how representative are the answers or the data sets in different countries provided. Um, yeah. But I think you're absolutely right there that, you know, at, at least at some of these more basic levels, we do need those core foundation blocks on which to build. Now, beyond that, you can say, and of course, PISA, as we know, is for um, a higher and older age group. You know, I don't think you necessarily need to argue that some of these things like social and emotional learning, on the one hand, you know, if you like the beginnings of life skills, Mm -hmm. um, or indeed creativity, need to be um, incompatible or somehow diluting. You know, you can argue, for example, a very creative way to to learn maths or literacy is Mm -hmm. also a more productive way to do it. And creativity needn't uh, in some way impede the mastery of the basics, it can actually help improve that for a larger number. Um, You know, I think there's there's a serious critique around perhaps, including my own country, the UK, um, too much focus on knowledge as opposed to skills development. Mm -hmm. Once you go beyond those basic, kind of younger, one hopes, um, achievements of of basic literacy and numeracy, you know, kind of cramming facts that won't necessarily be relevant, retained, applicable, rather than developing skills and techniques and processes that allow you to go out and find those facts and interpret and present and analyze and, and, you know, project beyond them. So that's one concern. I think a clear message amongst others from the PISA data, though, is around the issue of equity. And I think it does seem pretty clear that um, societies that try to focus on raising everybody and particularly, therefore, redirecting more resources to those who are struggling more that come from perhaps more traditionally deprived backgrounds and so on, benefits everybody and Mm -hmm. the societies the countries which tend to not perform so well tend to be actually more unequally distributed yes and of course that can apply in many ways but including the structure of the school system themselves where you have a kind of you know divided system with fee paying versus um public 
schools, for example, where there's less social mixing within groups. Um, so I think that's a that's a fundamental issue and and concern. And then and then the sort of the status given to teaching. It goes back to our earlier point yeah. about engagement with the community. So I think there's some key drivers there. But you're absolutely right. It, it, it's it, it's pretty disturbing to see um, how low the level of some of those basic skills is in some very well um, rich countries with long educational traditions. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, even more concerning. And of course, as you know, there was a sort of PISA plus group of some lower income countries that were yeah. included there and have also been tracked in some other um, metrics for low income countries. And there it's quite frankly shocking to see the low levels of basic understanding. And then what a huge waste for school systems, for the uh, the children involved, for their families, if they're basically, you know, the focus, going back to our point about focusing on processes and, and so on, you know, there's been a lot of focus on getting kids into school. There seems to have been rather less focus on what they're learning what when they're there. Yeah. yeah, and indeed, therefore, yeah. you know, are they going to drop out almost certainly more so are they you know sitting in a huge class but not learning which is sort of a waste of everybody's time as it were so I think you know to see that whatever it is something like 53 percent of um, lower and middle income uh, countries children are not achieving those basic benchmarks in literacy and numeracy and that could increase I think to current estimates to nearer to 63 percent is deeply worrying and that suggests all sorts of interventions and questions that need to be thrown out for scrutiny. I I have a a somewhat pedantic question to to ask you, Andrew. Do you you see literacy and numeracy as areas of knowledge or skills? I would call them skills, fundamentally. Um, I mean, of course, you know, and again, you know, some school systems focus on you know giving the the formal grammatical names to terms for instance yeah. um and i'm no you know expert in 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 this but it seems to me you know fundamentally this is about a skill it's you know you have to master yeah. certain concepts the the visualization the connection with sound you know breaking down words into units that are comprehensible and gradually building up the comprehension in the same way in in numeracy skills uh, certainly at the basic level Level. This should be about, you know, these are skills, I mean, at the higher level, um, and of course, OECD, amongst others, has been quite um, thoughtful on this. You know, you can argue yeah. there are, let's say, aspects in the, the maths curriculum, um, which are kind of legacies of agricultural or early industrial societies, the logarithm, you know, is this necessary still in today's world? Mm. Um, probably not. Um, as I say, in the same way, some sort of, you know, ablatives and uh, other kind of slightly more esoteric terminologies in yeah. more advanced grammar are maybe pushing too far, if you like, into into the knowledge category, yeah. but the core underlying skills and then the ability to use them later in life are fundamental. I mean, a, a related area, um, financial literacy, a huge concern. Mm-hmm. One amongst others, the, the FT is very interested in, um, you know, and if you look at, obviously, 
the increasing sophisticated challenges that people face around debt, around investment, around yeah. pensions, around, you know, opening and basic financial transactions. You know, these might be seen as applied skills or knowledge, if you like, but they're fundamentally based around basic understanding of, you know, percentages, increases. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And and I remember some, yeah. some quite important OECD work around this, looking at financial literacy programs in schools. And if I recall, you know, the key takeaway was that actually the, the systems that perform better in the sense that children going into adulthood able to navigate and avoid, for example, financial fraud and scams and high levels of debt and exploitation weren't those who went through some formalized financial literacy programs. They were those who had the basic uh, numeral, numerical understanding, yeah. you know, key uh, mathematical com- uh, you know, stru- constructs, as we've said, like compound interest that, um, you know, the building blocks for understanding. No, that's, I mean, I, I, I share that view and it, it's, it's, uh, it always surprises me that, you know, people tend to sort of bucket, you know, mathematics and, 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 and language into knowledge areas, whereas, you know, they are, you know, far more skills oriented. And as we see, you know, as we, uh, mentioned innumerable uh, times, they are the sort of fundamental building blocks for doing, you know, pretty much anything anything else. Uh, what else is is on your particular on on your uh, radar, Andrew? Well, I I, I mean. Mm-hmm. Very much. Obviously, again, this is this, this is uh, the progress, if I could put it that way, of recovery from the pandemic is, of course, being felt very, very differently in different parts of the world. Um, even between the UK, where there seems to be a little bit of optimism at the moment in terms of rollout of vaccination, the effect of lockdown in terms of reducing transmission, yep. means we've just started to return children wholesale to schools yeah. and yet you know i was just talking to uh, some people in finland uh, last week and there in the southern part of the country there they've just closed down uh, their schools again mm-hmm. the us and, and elsewhere and then of course in many other parts of the world there are some very different you know stages in terms of where the pandemic is and where opening up reopening up the education system is so you know Notwithstanding those differences, I've been trying to sort of piece together best practices and and state of play. And I think there clearly is an increasing focus now on what the post-pandemic recovery would look like for scolarity. You know, we're seeing more indications, some data, a lot anecdotal about learning loss, but also some of the innovations and adaptations that have taken place while children have been out of school um, and how those can be applied and and pushed forward with the return. So, of course, the the short term, which I've been talking to, is is a lot about the practical issues of whether there needs to be uh, testing for infection when children return to school and Mm -hmm. how that's coped with and how you're increasingly having to juggle a sort of hybrid system even when you know officially there's a return there are some who for reasons of infection or 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 reluctance perception concerns are staying out of school so how do teachers as well as their their families engage 
when you've mm-hmm. got that kind of multitasking challenge ahead. And I think there's some very interesting stuff going on, for example, in, in the UK around um, the use of videos that were being built up through players like the Oak uh, National Academy. But equally, I was talking, for example, to some teachers in Nigeria last week and some really interesting initiatives with um, Teach First, Teach for All alumni um, rolling out uh, the use of radio and other very simple tools to try and help engage. And as we were hearing from from Pratam, of course, you know, um, the focus should not just be on on tech, Tech, but on text, if you like. (laughs) So the idea of um, physical paper books and the opportunities there are there, as well as, of course, radio and other relatively low-tech solutions or basic texting, as opposed to any assumption of high barriers like, you know, bandwidth and family access to devices and to broadband and so on. So I think a lot of the reflection is starting now to think about how do we assess learning loss? What are the impacts? How do we catch up, as we've said, but also how how could we try to continue to apply some of the adaptations, whether it's engagement and outreach or innovations in pedagogy pedagogy and approaches that um, will be useful, not just as, as it were, catch up, but to start to try to rethink education. Yeah, no, and and um, are you are you looking at all at, um, at at higher ed as well? I mean, one of the, one of the things we we touched upon with uh, with Rukmini towards the end of our conversation was this um, this idea of high stakes exams and you know the, the degree to which you know the pandemic has has obviously disrupted some of that. Now, the, the UK has, of course, its its A level exams that 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 drive university admission they're not quite as high stakes as you know as some of the exams that um you know kids in india are you know subjected to or or in china but what's what's been the experience of the uk of of having sort of cancelled these exams uh certainly last year and i i don't know if the, if the plans are to sort of cancel them again this year uh as well but what's been the the, the experience there? yeah i mean i think I think there's been a bit of a national trauma, um, as you say. Yes, I mean this is this will be a second year where ultimately they've had to effectively scrap the normal marking systems. There'll be much more greater emphasis again um, in this coming cycle around teacher-based mm-hmm. assessments, then with some degree of, of benchmarking to try to um, normalise. Um, that is, of course, creating a lot of tensions and stresses, and it's it's a huge challenge, of course first and foremost for the students and their teachers and their families, but also for um, the universities or those trying to then understand how to adapt to these circumstances. Um, I mean, I think still the UK, like many other countries, there's still way too much focus on high stakes exams, um, particularly mm-hmm. particularly in the earlier years. And there's an absolutely, I think, valid re-reflection, notably about our so-called GCSEs, so the exams you take at 16, which, of course, in an era when um, school uh, finished, uh, compulsory schooling finished, um, made some sense. These days, with with schooling uh, in some form required until 18, it seems crazy to have to take such a huge chunk of curriculum time for preparation, revision, focusing on those intermediate exams rather than more 
more focus on lower stakes, but ongoing support and, and other ways to actually yeah. channel much more productively students and teachers' time. Now, of course, um, the challenge in higher education, as I said, is how do you adapt to that? And clearly, there's been all sorts of kind of uncertainties about how, you know, perceptions of grade inflation, how you assess those students going through. As to higher education itself, I think, um, you know, one challenge is there is no benchmark really for, if you like, the value added of higher education itself. Yeah. Um, you know, unless you have some sort of consistent standardised test across all subjects at point of entry and the same thing at point of exit, it's of course very, very difficult to measure learning gain or loss. Yeah. Uh, and certainly in a country like the UK, um, where you have a very selective higher education system, uh, much more than, for example, in uh, continental Europe, where, you know, core higher education in universities is seen essentially as a right. Large numbers go mm -hmm. and they then get weaned out normally at the end of the first year of higher education through exams. Um, but at least they can all start together. In the yeah. UK, the competition comes at point of selection and entry. Um, in some ways, that's, that can have some benefits. But of course, the challenge is, is then, yeah, how you assess how far it's the university experience itself that's increased the, um, the skills, capacities, the knowledge of students and how far it's the pre-selection process and actually the schools, if you like, or the communities and the families yeah. um, are the ones who've really put the effort in. And then that in turn creates the challenge at the next level, i.e. moving into the world of work and how do employers best judge students. Now, you know, I would love other people's thoughts and reflections on how we tackle that, because clearly as an employer, first of all, you do need certain basic yeah. skills. You also need those sort of wider sets of capacities um, to understand what what will be relevant to uh, new recruits in um, the job. It might be, you know, teamwork, communication, collaboration, uh, outwards facing capacity to, to work with customers, and then all sorts of specialist skill sets. I think we're a long way from really defining well what those are and how to assess them. And my worry, incidentally, is um, we're moving into a strange new era where um, there's at least the beginnings of an attempt to sort of create a more diversified pool of applicants to be fairer as possible um, by, you know, going beyond recruitment to, let's say, elite uh, universities, yeah. kind of the usual easy places to go. Um, the danger is we're opening stuff up and we're kind of increasingly talking about the use of, for example, artificial intelligence in selection, but using with all of the kind of the biases and the opacity that we know those systems create, mm. we don't really yet know the, the effect, the longer term impact, or indeed the whether those recruited through those sort of systems are um, actually delivering more and more effectively. Yeah. Um, and I think we're in placing increasing stresses on these existing generations who are going through traditional routes of university and so on, because now the pressures on them, the huge volume of additional work that they have to do in preparing through often online testing and interviews, often with robots effectively, with little feedback or sense of, um, you know, whether they will be able to achieve their, their goals and to be hired, means, you know, we're putting a lot of emphasis back on applicants, a lot more mm -hmm. high volume, and not 
necessarily getting uh, any clear um, benefits out at the far end. So I think there's a huge reflection to do in further and higher education and the transition into the world of work yeah. about how to understand, to nurture, support, trust, and recruit effectively. Well, I don't know if you're you're familiar with with this this book. I think it it came out must have been a decade ago now called The Global Auction. It was written by a a number of um, UK-based academics. And I think it made a pretty compelling case that essentially, you know, what we're seeing in in the sort of education to employment nexus is a sort of credentials and qualifications arm race uh, taking place driven by, you know, the, the wide availability of talent, quite frankly, with and so the only way to to then differentiate is you know to see who's had the highest number of of sort of degrees or spent the most uh number of years in in uh in schooling you know i, I again i don't know what you know what your thoughts are on uh on that or whether there's there's some something there but i i found the argument quite you know quite uh, convincing yeah i mean i think um certainly Overall, the idea of offering greater opportunities for people, not just post-school, but throughout their life, to have access to learning is fundamental. Uh, And so, you know, the growth of the university sector, higher education, vocational training, and so on, as a as a sort of resource, I think is largely desirable. And I think, you know, most of the data would point to those that who've, who've had more time in learning tend to benefit in all sorts of ways, whether it's socially or economically, or in terms of personal fulfillment. Um, so that's the good side of it. The, the challenge, and of course, as we know, you know, um, people are working longer, they're having to change jobs, they needing to reskill. So we clearly need a much rich, richer deeper, longer-term infrastructure for learning. There's a separate question, which is precisely how we measure and track and reward that. And I would agree. I mean, I think there are a lot of perhaps jobs and areas where, partly because computation has been increased, um, there's a perhaps slightly simplistic tendency and desire to focus on some piece of paper, some qualification, some exam result as a as a sort of point of entry that will be increasingly required. Yeah. yeah, and th- yeah, exactly. And 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 you know, as we know, there are huge challenges with really doing that fairly. You know, with the huge debates about how do you compare the grades of different subjects in a similar in the same university, let alone between universities when you yeah. have very different cohorts and teaching and research capacities and so on. Um, it's, you know, something the community seems to, to seem to be really only in the foothills of and, you know, how challenging for employers and others beyond those debates and, and and further away from the the messy interior of all of that point of education to try and make assessments on their own. So I think there's a there's a huge challenge ahead in terms of reflecting on that. But yeah, I mean I think we need to try to find much more sophisticated ways to understand people's talents and to think about progression and support um, that goes beyond, as it were, paper-based qualifications sometimes that are, you know, unnecessarily theoretical, that are quite difficult to compare, that may be a, a form of sort of cover for not really addressing the underlying issues and needs that we have going forwards in societies. Yeah. I, I noticed you're being very diplomatic and you're avoiding uh, sort of stating that that a lot of it may be 
unnecessary as well. But I, I, yeah. won't, I won't push you on that. No, no, no. I mean, I, I absolutely. I would. I, I mean, in my view, there. Yes, you know. I mean, I think there are a lot of how should we say crafts, professions, and so on, um, which bluntly sort of spending time in a classroom, sometimes learning pseudo theoretical concepts, um, yeah. adds nothing to. I would argue even in much more historically, uh, how to put it, sort of academically, intellectually rigorous, demanding and competitive areas like medicine. Uh, or law. A, yeah. Or law, yeah. I yeah. mean, these are also, you know, yeah. these are guilds that mm-hmm. um, for which qualifications, complex, expensive, um, highly selective processes are also a way to kind of, you know, exclude in order to kind of conserve a kind of elite group at the centre that has status yeah. and high remuneration and so on. And when you think about a lot of the skills that are or should be required in something like medicine, you know, um, of course, science is fundamental, but, you know, so is everything empathy and and there are lots of skills that i think you know kind of mm-hmm. under represented in a, in a different field incidentally that i i focus on quite a lot business education in the same yeah. way i think um you know if we're talking about issues around you know the existential issues for our planet sustainability for example if we're talking also about skill sets that we know are not only important for economic productivity but also for mental health as a growing issue you know we need to talk about empathy and you know i think that those are areas, skill sets, knowledge sets, values, issues around the nature of who you recruit, both as as teachers, the projects and curricula you develop, and the students that you're trying to train. That we're uh, again, you know, early, only really in the very early stages of trying to to think through. So no, I mean, there's a, there's a huge amount that needs to change throughout the education system. Andrew, I feel we've we've opened a bit of a Pandora's box here of of uh, of issues around around higher education, and and I know we're coming up to your uh your time so uh, before sort of signing off a word perhaps about the ft schools program just to remind our listeners of you know what a what a wonderful resource uh you have available for uh education institutions yes so we offer uh, free online access to students aged 16 to 18 anywhere in the world their teachers and their schools it's part of our contribution to try to uh, inject high quality uh, up-to-date insights and information that we hope um, can could trigger classroom discussions to, to help inform in uh, essays and academic work and also in the transition to the next stage whether it's further in higher education or uh, the world of work and we do that through trying to get teachers and students to engage directly to to flag up content that we're producing and to identify ways in which it can be used uh, and also competitions um, we've just launched a new one with the political studies association in the UK talking about um, getting students to contribute their views. We've just closed one with the World Bank trying to ask students around the world about how they think learning could be improved. Um, And we'll be publishing some of the leading thoughts and essays from that uh, in the next few weeks. So many different ways to, to engage that we hope both enrich students and teachers, but also enlighten our existing uh, readers around the world to try and build bridges between the generations. Great. Well, Andrew, again, thank you for being on uh, on Wise Words. And I think what we should do at, at some stage is set, a, set aside a whole episode to, to sort of unpack issues to do with education and, and employment, higher education and employment in particular. So thank with, you again, Andrew. With pleasure. Thanks very much. It was, it was good to talk. 
This is Basim Hijazi, producer of the Wise Words podcast. Thank you very much for tuning into the show where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and beyond. What did you think of this episode? We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback so you can reach out to us anytime on our social media channels, which you can find in the description. And of course, if you're new to the show, please do consider subscribing for more episodes just like this one. And as Stavros mentioned in the intro, this season we're going to be taking a look at some of the world's post-pandemic priorities for the future of education. We actually recently published an episode focusing on the United States with Rebecca Winthrop of the Brookings Institute in combination with this one. So stay tuned for our social media channels to be informed on our next episode set to release in April 2021. And if you've missed the episode with Rebecca, be sure to check that one out as well. And keep an eye out to be informed when we go live next time to share your questions and comments directly with us. And finally, if you're listening on the iPhone or Mac, consider leaving us a review on Apple or iTunes as that really helps out the show. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and hope to see you again next time. I think we are a wrap. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a wrap. Chat. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, I enjoyed it. No, I, I certainly, I mean, I enjoyed it too. It's, 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 it's one of the privileges of, of the job, Rukmini, that oh, no, I get no. to, I get this to chat a... to people like you. So. 